With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by eplindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block, allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25, and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router, and any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a tad predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable, hosted by Kevin DeVries, on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. Woo! 
What's good, boys and girls? Two for the podcast. Today is Monday, the 16th of October. I hope you're all well and had a pleasant weekend. I did not. Unfortunately, Ireland were knocked out of the Rugby World Cup by New Zealand. Congrats to the All Blacks and all Kiwi fans. Uh, Ireland played probably their worst game in two years. And New Zealand played probably their best game in 18 months. And unfortunately, Ireland were just too sloppy. And um, it's tough because they probably won't have a better opportunity to win a World Cup in, you know, in the next 10, 15, 20 years. This was a real chance. Had they beaten New Zealand, which they really should have, they were the better team, not on the day, but going into it, they would have faced Argentina. You would have fancied them to get past Argentina, which would have put them in a final against either South Africa, who beat France, or England. I would expect South Africa to beat England quite comfortably. And I think Ireland could have beaten South Africa in a final. They've already beaten them once in this competition. Now, they did have an element of fortune in that game, where South Africa missed some kicks that maybe they wouldn't miss on another day. But I do think, had Ireland gotten past New Zealand, I I think final was... Not certain, because you can never disrespect Argentina. They were a a good team, but certainly very, very strong possibility of getting to the final. And then you get to the final. South Africa would have had the advantage in terms of they're the reigning champions. Much of this squad was there last time in 2019. South Africa are going against the script here, though. I mean, they won it in 95. They won it in 17. No, sorry, they won it in 95, they won it in 07, they won it in 19. They weren't due to win it again until 2031. Um, but they've decided they're just going to go ahead and, and and just, you know, break from, from the norm and try and win it again this year. And if they do, it'll be an amazing achievement. And they'll be only the second team to ever go back to back in the World Cup after New Zealand in 11 and 15. They'd be the first team First Nation to win the Rugby World Cup four times, which is an amazing achievement when you factor in they did not take part in 87 or 91 when they were banned as a result of the apartheid regime. But that's enough rugby for today's podcast. Um, For those of you who wasted your time and money, well, no, if you wasted your time on the, uh, the Misfits boxing at the weekend, uh, I watched the fights, uh, the two main fights. I didn't watch any of the rest of the card. Um, it was, uh, you know, it was look. It, the, the 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 the, the co main event. Neither of them are boxers. One of them is a, a great, great jujitsu pract- practitioner, who's an incredible troll, but immensely unlikable. Uh, and the other is fairly unlikable. A professional wrestler, um, a decently talented boxer, I think, for for the level, like not not against real boxers, but for the level, um, he's a very good pro wrestler. I'll give him that, and he's clearly a very good businessman as well because he's he's got uh, a company that's probably going to sell for a couple of billion at some point. Um, That fight was an embarrassment for Dylan Dennis because he 
didn't really throw any punches. I think he caught Logan Paul with one decent punch in the whole fight. And he seems to be celebrating the fact that he didn't get knocked out. You didn't do anything. You stood there with your guard up and you got pummeled. And then you tried to take him down twice. When you tried to take him down, you tried to guillotine him. Uh, Logan Paul was a really good high school wrestler who, had he not gone the YouTube route, would have probably gone to college and wrestled on a scholarship um, and, and had no time for that. And people say, oh, well, you know, if they fight in MMA, well, Dylan will beat him easily. I don't agree. Logan will beat lumps out of him on the feet. Dylan won't be able to put as big a guard up because you don't have the big boxing gloves on. And I think Dylan will struggle to take Logan Paul down. Now, if it gets to the ground, then Dylan Dennis has a huge advantage. But getting Logan to the ground will be tough because Logan's a better wrestler than Dylan is. So, I don't know. The fight itself wasn't good. The main event wasn't good. Tommy Fury against KSI. Uh, KSI is not a boxer. He's a YouTuber (coughs) slash musician. I thought he did quite well, considering, like, Tommy's clearly the much better boxer. I thought KSI won rounds one, two, and six, and I thought Tommy won three, four, and five. Now, two, five, and six were close, and I think could have gone either way. I just don't see any way you can give all three of them to Tommy. I would have said three rounds each, and Tommy had a point deducted. So as a result of the point deduction, I think KSI should have won the fight. I don't think it's a robbery, though. Like I said, two, five, and six were really close. It could have gone either way. Um, it wasn't a good fight. Tommy looks really poor. He's not a he's not a boxer. Like I know he's a professional boxer, but like look at the guys he's fought. One of the guys he fought has has a hundred losses. He's fought a bunch of tomato cans, and then I, probably his two fights before Jake Paul were real, you know, real decent boxers, but not guys that are ever going to win a world title. He fought Jake, he didn't look good, but he beat him. He fought KSI, he looked really poor. He's trading on his brother's name, like, if we're all being honest. However, here's my my theory, and this is just a theory. I have a feeling this whole thing is a little bit staged. I think the idea here is Tommy comes out, doesn't go full bore. Cause I think if he went full bore against either Jake Paul or KSI, he should knock them clean out or should beat them comfortably. Um, not by split decision, majority decision. But I think the idea is, is here is let's have a close fight and then he'll get the decision. If it's, you know, it's as long as it's a close fight, Tommy Fury will get the decision it, all it's doing is it's setting up KSI versus Jake Paul, which will be the the last of these, you know, major uh, influencer boxer fights. I think we'll still see the cards with a bunch of the others, but none of them have the draw. KSI and Jake Paul is what this uh, this has all been working for, working towards for years and years. Um, when KSI beat Joe Weller, he called out both Paul brothers. I think, I think Jake was the one he really wanted to fight. But he fought Logan twice. I think then he wanted to fight Jake, and they just never, 
never got the rack together. I assume that will happen uh, at some point next year. I, I just can't see any other way around it. I think that will happen at some point next year. Anyway, that's enough about that as well. I hope nobody wasted their money on that uh, garbage. It was not good by any stretch, but it was entertaining. Anyway, uh, we did have some football at the weekend as well. We had some uh, European qualifiers for the 2024 Euros, which will take place in Germany next summer between the 14th of June and the 14th of July. Um, Just looking at the stadiums that will host this competition, and Germany really does stand above, I think, the rest of Europe in terms of stadiums. You've got, obviously, the Olympia Stadium in Berlin, which aesthetically and architecturally is stunning. The atmosphere is not great, but it is a stunning stadium. It's one of the most attractive-looking stadiums in Europe. You've got the Allianz Arena, which is a masterpiece, an absolute masterpiece. Great atmosphere, great venue. Then you've got the Westfalenstadion in Dortmund, which might have the best atmosphere in Europe. You've got the MHP Arena in Stuttgart, which is a great stadium. You've got the Volkparkstadion in Hamburg, which was way ahead of its time when it first was opened. Uh, you've got the Veltons Arena in Gelsenkirchen, again well above, well, well before its time when it was when it was opened. Uh, the Deutsche Bank Arena in Frankfurt is a great stadium. You've got the Red Bull Arena in Leipzig, which is. It's fairly cookie cutter. There's other stadiums like it. It's slightly smaller than the other ones of the same kind of design, but it's a good stadium. The Rhine Energy Stadium in Cologne has has a classic appeal, but has been modernized. And the Michael Speil Arena in Dusseldorf, another one that has that classic appeal, but has been modernized. Externally, it's more modern. Internally, it's modern without question. It has the best of the best, but it still has that. You know what a lot of the newer stadiums, it's like the the bowl or the oval. It these some of these stadiums still feel like they're four-sided, and I like that. I, I like the traditional four-sided feel of a stadium, which I think is why the Westfalen Stadium is my favorite stadium in Europe now. Um the yellow wall, of course, helps. But Great stadiums, great, great stadiums. And Germany knows how to put on a competition. You know, they held the 2006 World Cup. For my money, it's the last good tournament or the last good World Cup at the very least. Um, so I am I am looking forward to this one. Obviously, they also held uh, the 1988 Euros, which were a triumph. They really were a triumph. And some of the stadiums are, um, well, to be fair, Volk Park is the same ground, but it's a different stadium. Uh, the Olympic Stadium's gone. The Park Stadium's gone. It, that is the only similarity is... Oh, well, the Rheinstadion in, in, in Dusseldorf as well is the same, isn't it? I'm almost certain it's the same venue. It's just been 
No, it's a new stadium. I'm wrong. Yeah, I'm wrong. It's a new stadium. So the only one that's the same spot is in Hamburg, but it's a new stadium. It's, it was completely rebuilt. Um, but 88 was a great Euros. Everybody remembers it for the Van Basten goal, but if you're Irish, you remember it for beating the English and the Ronnie Whelan goal. Uh, anyway, Georgia 4, Cyprus 0. Norway nil, Spain won. And with that win through a Gavi goal, both Spain and Scotland have qualified for the European Championships. So massive congrats to the Scots. It was a little bit nervy after the their game against Spain, but I think they'll be they'll be absolutely thrilled uh to be through. Uh Turkey four, Latvia nil. Wales 2, Croatia 1. Massive win for, for the Welsh. Upset win, I would have said, considering obviously Bale is gone. There was no Aaron Ramsey. Two goals from Harry Wilson put Wales 2-0 up. Pasolic did pull one back for Croatia, but it wasn't to be. And look, the Croatian team, it's just, it's gotten old. That's the, the be-all and the end-all of it. It's gotten old. There's still talent there without question, but they're still heavily reliant on Luka Modric, on Brozovic, who's now playing in Saudi, on Kovacic, who I I think is carrying an injury, doesn't look quite right to me, and on Vida, who's just not very good. Um, In Group E, the Czech Republic beat the Faroe Islands 1-0, and Poland and Moldova drew 1-1. In Group I... Switzerland 3, Belarus 3, and Romania 4, Andorra 0. Today, we get Gibraltar versus the Republic of Ireland. You can be guaranteed I will not be watching that. We get Greece versus the Netherlands. In Group F, it's Azerbaijan versus Austria and Belgium versus Sweden. And in Group J, Bosnia and Herzegovina versus Portugal, Iceland versus Liechtenstein, Luxembourg versus Slovakia. Then tomorrow, England versus Italy should be a good one. Malta versus Ukraine. Decent. They're the Group C games. Group G, Lithuania versus Hungary, and Serbia versus Montenegro, which is obviously going to be a little bit tasty. Uh, Finland versus Kazakhstan, Northern Ireland, Slovenia, and San Marino, Denmark are the Group G games. So the groups as currently constituted uh, in Group A, Spain are through, Scotland are through. Georgia will be in the playoffs via the Nations League nonsense, and Norway will hope to get to the playoffs as well. In Group B, France are qualified. Greece and the Netherlands are still in with a chance of qualifying automatically. The Netherlands have played a game less of three points less. Greece have the better goal difference. Ireland cannot qualify directly, but may still advance through the playoffs. But let me let me just make clear, they won't be advancing through anything because they're awful. And Gibraltar will finish bottom. In Group C, England are top. Italy are second. Um, Ukraine are third. I would, I would be betting on England and Italy to qualify automatically from that group. Ukraine then maybe to get in to the playoffs, and then North Macedonia to miss out. Malta have already been eliminated. 
In Group D, Turkey are top, 16 points. Wales are second, level on points with Croatia. Two games left to play. Wales are home to Turkey. And then they're away to Armenia. So they are in with a good chance. Croatia have Armenia home and Latvia away. To be fair, Croatia's run is easier. Uh, then Armenia are fourth and Latvia are bottom. They've been eliminated. Albania top group E, which is probably the biggest surprise across the board. Czech Republic are currently second, Poland third, Moldova are fourth. They could still get in through the playoffs, but not automatically. And then Faroe Islands, they are bottom. They are almost certainly. Oh, I'm wrong. Moldova cannot get through the playoffs, but can qualify directly, which is a little bit weird. Um, I'm not really sure how that works, but you know, I don't, I don't care to learn. Um, Group F, Belgium top, they've qualified. Austria second, they look almost certain to qualify. Then Sweden and Azerbaijan, and then Estonia. Uh, Group G, Hungary are top, which is a great achievement. They've played a game less as well, which is masterful. Then we get Serbia, then Montenegro, Lithuania, and Bulgaria. Group H, Slovenia are top. Denmark are second, then Finland and Kazakhstan. Four-way battle there to get through. That's one of the bigger groups, so they'll play 10 games, so three left for each of them. Group I, Romania top, Switzerland second, Israel third. I don't really understand how Israel aren't being banned when Russia were banned, but, you know, you'll have that. Kosovo, Belarus, and Andorra. And then in Group J, Portugal, they've qualified. Slovakia, and Luxembourg battling out for second with Bosnia and Herzegovina, and then Iceland and Liechtenstein have been eliminated. So I think I'm right in saying that Portugal and France are the only teams with perfect records so far. Seven from seven from Portugal, six from six for France. It's pretty impressive. Um, pretty impressive, even with you know, even with easier groups. Uh, so right now we've got Germany qualified as the hosts. This will be their 14th European Championships. That's a pretty impressive record. Pretty impressive record to have been in every single European Championships since 1972. Uh, Then it's Belgium. This will be their seventh. Then France. This will be their 11th. Portugal. This will be their ninth. Spain. This will be their 12th. They've been at every one. Oh, they weren't at 92, so they haven't been at every one since 1980, so that's incorrect. Uh, Scotland, this will be their fourth go, and the first time since, you know, 92, 96 that they've gone back-to-back, so that's pretty impressive to get to get there after such a long drought and, and do it back-to-back. And then Turkey, uh, this will be their sixth bite of the apple. So, um, all things considered, I think it's shaping up to be a good competition, maybe. I, it'll be. I, I like that it's in one country. I like that it's in Germany. They know how to run a competition. I don't like the fact that there's 24 countries. I think that's just too many. I think 16 is the maximum that there should be. I think we just dilute the field by inviting eight extra. But you know, money has to be made. Uh, after that, then we have Manchester United news. 
So, when Manchester United were put up for sale, those of you who listen regularly will have heard uh, a certain Irishman say that he didn't believe the club was actually for sale, that the idea here was to inflate the stock price and then sell part of the club at an inflated price. And that is exactly how this has played out. It looks like Sir Jim Ratcliffe will buy 25% of the club at a vastly inflated price. Whether that means that over time he will buy the rest of the club, I don't know. What I will say is that he has not done a particularly good job owning Nice. Um, They are at the moment having a decent season, but generally they are fairly mediocre and have been for most of the Ineos uh, tenure. Last season, they finished ninth. The season before, fifth. The season before, ninth. The season before, fifth. The season before, seventh. What year did they buy Nice? Let me just check. Um, It doesn't say. It might say it here. Let's have a look. Da, da, da. 2019, yeah. So there we go. So we've been back through all the years where uh, the club has been owned by Ineos and Jim Radcliffe. They also own Lausanne in Sw- uh, Switzerland. And they have owned that club since 2017. Uh, so at the moment, they're, they're doing okay. Uh, but if I'm not mistaken, they were relegated a couple of years ago and have only just bounced back. Yes, so they were uh, they were relegated the first year they owned the club. It took them two years to get promoted. They survived two years, were, well, one year, were relegated in the second year, but have bounced back up at the first attempt. So uh, two relegations, two promotions, which... To be fair, right, to be fair, at least there's excitement in that. Now, it's nerve-wracking excitement, but at least it's it's exciting. It's better than the Nice situation where they're fifth or ninth or fifth or ninth. That's just awful. No one wants that. Um, But they haven't necessarily improved either of those clubs. And uh, I'd be curious to see if they can improve Manchester United. Uh, Jordan Henderson says he has to take criticism on the chin after being booed off during England's friendly win over Australia. Um, There's there's three reasons why he could have been booed. One, he shouldn't be in the squad because he plays in Saudi Arabia and it's basically, you know, like League Two standard at best. Uh, Two, he shouldn't be in the squad because he's shit. Or three, perhaps the fact that he used the LGBTQ community as a tool to build his own PR and as you know, uh, come across as this really good guy, a, a friend of the LGBTQ community, you know, a comrade in arms, someone that would defend them 
And then he took the bag from South Africa and rubbished all that into the floor. Uh, the reason he was booed is, is actually all three. And then the fact that he lied afterwards about why he made the move and the fact that he wasn't being paid to promote the country, which he's then gone and done. Uh, Rangers have appointed a new manager, Philippe Clement. Little bit surprised by this one, if I'm honest. Uh, not a big fan. So as a Celtic fan, I'm quite happy with with this appointment. Um, I just don't think he's very good, if I'm being honest. I don't think he's very good. He was, he was pretty mediocre with Monaco. Now, he did a decent job with Club Bruges. There's no question. He won back-to-back titles. He did well in Belgium. He did well in Belgium. I think he actually won three in a row in Belgium, one with Genk and two with Club Bruges. But he did a pretty poor job with Monaco over 18 months and was then uh, kicked to the curb. Um, I wouldn't be a huge fan. I just I just wouldn't be a huge fan. I liked him as a player, though. Did like him as a player. Had a brief spell at Coventry. Uh, I'll, look, it's a big task. It's a big club. We'll see how the players that were signed by Michael Beale adapt to the Clement methods. It's obviously tough for a player. You sign in the summer for one manager and then all of a sudden a different type of manager comes in. So we'll see how that works out. Uh, We're going to take a break. Then we're going to come back, given we've talked very little about football in this podcast, uh, because, you know, why wouldn't you talk about influencer boxing and rugby on a football podcast well i'll talk about what i want to talk about because this is my podcast and that's just all there is to it uh no uh we're going to talk about a bit of football when we come back because i'm not here tomorrow so i'm going to do my tuesday my new tuesday show which i think people liked last week when i did the goalkeeper rankings uh certainly the people that got in touch did uh, if anyone didn't uh, apologies i'm going to do it again we're going to do right backs today we're going to do my top 10 currently in the Premier League, my top 10 in the world, my top 10 all time, and then my five favorite of all time. And that's going to be it. And then we're going to do the gossip because we've got a bunch of gossip to get through. And that will be our show for today, which will be short and succinct, which is unusual for me. Uh, I say that and then I'll start rambling about one of these right backs. I uh, hope everybody liked the bumper length, the bumper length podcast that went out on Friday. Uh, apologies. I had no idea I went that long. Genuinely, I had no idea I'd been rambling that long. But still, uh, right, see you after this. Right, roughly an hour after, well, about an hour and a half, actually, after we finished part one. We're back for part two. Um there's just always something, isn't there? Like, you just never get a clean run at anything. It is always something. Somebody's dropping something or doing something or hurting themselves. Or There's just always something. Right. <clears throat> right backs it is. Premier League top 10. Number one, I've got Trent. I still maintain he's the best right back in the league. He is otherworldly on the ball. And he's average as a defender. He's not a dreadful defender. This notion that he's shocking. There are times, and unfortunately in the last 14 to 15 months, there have been too many times when he doesn't put in the adequate effort, whereas his focus just drops off. 
the effort comes and goes. I think he wants to move full-time into midfield. That's my gut feeling on it. But I'm still taking him over any other right back in the league because of these players, he's still the best player. Number two is Reese James. And Reese James is an outstanding player. He's well-rounded. He's very good going forward, not on Trent's level. He's a slightly better defender than Trent. He is overrated as a defender. Like, we have seen Reese James get roasted on plenty of occasions. We've seen him have concentration lapses. But he is a very good player. And it needs to be remembered that he is a very good player. I do have concerns over his injury track record, though. Like, that would concern me long-term if I was a Chelsea fan or the Chelsea manager. I don't know that you can rely on him. The fact that they made him captain, given his track record of injuries, is a little bit strange. But there's no doubting, when he's on the pitch, he makes a massive impact. Number three, there's a, there's a significant drop-off after the top two. That's worth pointing out here. A significant drop-off. Number three, I've gone Kyle Walker, and I don't like it, but I... I look, defensively, his pace is his biggest attribute by a country mile. And the fact that he's been able to maintain his pace to this point in his career shows what an amazing athlete he is. Going forward, he's very rudimentary. Like, he's not a great cross to the ball. But if you get him into good positions, he can pick out the right man. He doesn't score enough, considering how much he gets involved in the final third. That being said, City have used him a lot more as a part of a back three in the last 18 months or so. So that's understandable. But even at his peak, he wasn't getting enough goals. And when you see... What a powerful strike on him he has. That's where I'd be disappointed there. Uh, four, I've gone Kieran Trippier. I think he's an average defender. He's got incredible set-piece delivery. He's a great crosser of the ball. He's, after Trent and Reese James, he's the third best deliverer of a ball. He might actually be better at delivering a ball both from a set piece and a stationary cross than Reese James. On the run, Reese James is a better crosser than Trippier. What I like about Trippier is the way the leadership side of his game has developed in recent years. And it is funny to think that at one point Spurs had both of them, Kyle Walker and Kieran Trippier. Uh, number five, I've gone Pedro Poro. Now, I can understand why some people would look in a different direction here, but I think going forward, he's very, very good. He's not a great defender, but I do think he's he's got the potential because of his pace and his aggression to be an average or slightly above average defender. This season, he has been very, very good defensively. So I've gone him number five. Number six, I've gone Ben White. Now, personally... I would rather have Tommy Asu at right back. And if I had Tommy Asu at right back, I think he might be third on my list. Because I think defensively, Tommy Asu is outstanding. 
I think he's a better defender than Walker. He doesn't have Walker's pace, but he reads the game better. Positionally, he's better. He's very comfortable on the ball. I don't like the way Arteta uses him as a left back. I just think it's a nonsense. Um, but Ben White is Arsenal starting right back, so Ben White slots in at number six. At number seven, I think I'm going to go Vladimir Sufal of West Ham. Now, he was very poor last season, but he has started this season in really good form. And for the two seasons prior to last season, he was very good. So gone with him at number seven. And then I've got three that are in a bunch, and it's hard to pick between them. I think I'm going to go Diogo Delo, number eight. I like his versatility. He can play either side. He's solid defensively. He's comfortable on the ball. He always finds himself available and makes himself available. He's happy receiving the ball under pressure. He can beat a man. Doesn't have blow-away pace or anything, but he can get on the outside and get round a fullback and get his cross in. So I'll go with him at number eight. Number nine, I've gone Matty Cash. Now, Villa have used him at times on the wing this season, and Ezri Konza's played right back. I do quite like Ezri Konza as a right back. I like that more defensive fullback if you're going to play with you know a really attacking one, which they have on the left, be it Luca Dina or Moreno when he's fully fit. So I like the idea of Konza as a right back. Um, which is, again is, is why I really like the idea of Tommy Asu playing right back. Um, I think if Arsenal want to play Zinchenko at left back, the smart money is to move or to put Tommy Asu at right back. But they, look, they also have Julian Timber who can play that right back role, and, and he he's potentially even better again. But um, yeah, Manny Cash, he's diligent defensively. He's aggressive defensively. He does make defensive lapses. But they're more concentration than a lack of ability or a lack of willingness. And going forward, he's decent. He is decent. I had hoped he'd be more developed by now. But I think he was poorly managed for quite a while at Villa. Dean Smith's not a great manager. Gerard's a bad manager. This is the first real manager he's had at Villa. And... I think the early signs have been very good. I was impressed last season. I've been impressed this season. Whether it's at a fullback, wingback, or as a right winger, I, I like Matty Cash. And then in 10th, I'm going to go Max Ahrens. And I still I still have a lot of Max Ahrens stock. I think going forward, when he's confident, when he's on his game, when he's got the right player in front of him, he can be outstanding. Like when he was at Norwich, there was times when they ran their, their attack through him which for a dribbling right back rather than, you know, a Trent or a Reese James or even a Trippier is unusual. But he was the way he was able to beat players and drive into the box and draw others and then always pick the right pass was very, very impressive. Norwich obviously held on to him too long, sold far too late, turned down 30-odd million for him in the hopes of getting 40-odd. I think they got eight. Um, so that wasn't good by Norwich. He's obviously not developed into the player that people had hoped he would become. Because I think if he had, he's one that could be third on this list. But I think he's still a good player. I think it's a really good get for Bournemouth to get him at the price they got him at. So Trent, Reese, Walker, Trippier, Poro, White, Delo, Soufal, Cash, and Aarons. Now, 
Aaron Hickey's unfortunate to miss out here because I think he's very good. But I do think he's much more a left back, and I still think he think he looks uncomfortable playing right back. Um. Veltman, I think, has has fallen off significantly, so that's why he didn't make the list. Wan Bissaka, it was Wan Bissaka or Delo. Delo, for me, should be their first choice. I think he actually is their first choice when everybody's fit. I think he's the better player. Who else in the top ten? I don't like Crystal Palace's right back situation with Joel Ward and Nathaniel Klein. I think they're both well past the best. I'm not a big Kenny Kenny Tete fan. I, I don't know that Forrest have a a surefire. I mean, Ain has played there, Aurier's played there. They've got Nico Williams. I'm not hugely keen. On Nico Williams or Aurier, I do like Ola Aina, but he's not played enough at right back to consider this season. Uh, Semedo's unfortunate to miss out, and to his credit, he's having a very good season. So if you want to swap Semedo in for for Max Ahrens or Maddie Cash, <clears throat> I think that's fair. Uh, I think that's fair. Um, Seamus Coleman's been injured, and Patterson is, is struggling to get game time because Sean Dyche has decided that Ashley Young who, for my money, is the second worst right back in the league, uh, is is a better choice. Uh, we're going global now, worldwide. So, again, I've got Trent. I, I, I just can't see anybody who's got, who offers more than Trent. So, it's got to be Trent for me. Number two, I've gone Ashraf Hakimi, who I adore. I think he's an outstanding player. He's a very good defender. He is a streak of lightning going forward. I'd like more final third production, but he is still only 24, so he still has time. I'd like to see him produce more in the final third, considering the technical ability, how good a passer he is. I don't think it's translated as well to his crossing, but he is a tremendous all-round fullback. Uh, number three, then I've gone Reese James. Number four was a little bit of a hedge from me. So what I've decided to do here, and I know he doesn't always play as a right back. He sometimes plays left back. He sometimes plays right back in a back three. But for me, the fourth best right back in the world is Nazar Mizrahi. And I think the top four world uh, top four right backs in the world. There's two English and I think there's two Moroccans. And then I actually have a considerable drop to the others because Mizrahi for me, of the four, he's the best defender and it's not close. He is outstanding defensively. And I really don't understand how he hasn't been more highly regarded. I think he is outstanding defensively. 1v1, he's near unbeatable. He's got good pace. He's strong. He's big. He's good in the air. Reads the game well. Sweeps those centre-backs very, very well. He's a good cover defender. He's also very good at covering in front of the centre-back. So when the defensive midfielder goes AWOL for whatever reason, Masrawi's really, really good at reading the game and stepping into that midfield role and getting across at good speed. And if he's got the right... Pe- partners in defence, which he does for Morocco, 
they'll often just flex to a three and he'll sit in front. And then they're they're still really solid. And if the ball shifts wide and the holding midfielder gets back in, rather than him busting his ass to get back to fullback, he's comfortable to drop the centre-back. And that means the team can hold a strong defensive shape. So I think his versatility is a big factor here. But I've got Nazar Mizrahi as my number four right back. Uh, number five, I've gone Kyle Walker. And again, I don't love it. But I've gone... I've gone with defense over attack here because number six, I've got Zhao Canseo. Now, he's a he's a very flawed footballer, but there's no doubting his ability. There's no doubting his talent on the ball. There's no doubting when he's on his game, he is immensely effective. He is hopeless defensively, but he is outstanding on the ball. He can play either side and he can do whatever you need him to do. From both sides, he can go outside and cross on the run. He can come in field and play a pass or shoot. He can also step into that midfield role and act as a deep-lying playmaker type. So I do think Joe Canseo is a very good player. I, I don't really understand what happened at City, how it's it's come to, like, he was starting. He was one of their best players. Then the next season comes, he's in and out of the team. Him and Pep have a slight falling out. And then all of a sudden, he's on his way to Bayern Munich. And now he's at Barcelona. And I assume if they can afford him, Barca will try and keep him. Um, it took him a while to get going at City, but I thought once he did, he was he was very, very important. Now, I don't think he'll be enormously upset about how things have broken out because he's, you know, he's in Spain where he wanted to be all along. You go back and look at him as a young player when he was at Benfica, when he moved to Valencia, he talked about how he'd always wanted to play in La Liga. Uh, I still don't understand why Inter Milan didn't keep him when they had him on loan with an option to buy. I still don't understand why Juve decided to sell him. Well, City did blow them out of the water with the offer, to be fair. But he's found his way back to Barca. And I mean, you look at the honours he's won. He won the Premier League with Benfica. He won Serie A with Juventus. He won three league titles with uh, Manchester City. He got a Champions League winner's medal last season because he played, I think, all the group stage games. And he won the Bundesliga last year as well. So um, I think he's going to be pretty happy with with, with his lot. But yeah, I've got him uh, coming in at number six. At number seven, then I've gone, I've gone for Trippier. But... It's really close, and I'd be more than happy to be convinced to drop Trippier one because I think Giovanni Di Lorenzo of Napoli. I, I think he's, a, I think he's decent at everything and not not very good at anything. You know, he's a, he's a jack of all trades. He's decent going forward. He's a decent passer. He's a decent crosser. He's a decent defender. He's decent one v one. I don't feel like he's a standout in any area, but I do like him. I do like him as a player, and he can play both sides. He could fill in at centre-back, and he can fill in in midfield. So you do get that versatility with him as well. So I've gone with Di Lorenzo at number eight. Uh, Number nine, I've gone Jeremy Frimpong of Bayer Leverkusen. He is such an exciting player. Outstanding going forward. Not great defensively. And a big part of that 
is his size. Like he's a small player. He's five seven. So I do think that's a big factor. Um, but I do really like him. I, I think he's probably more wing back than full back, admittedly. But I'm doing this by you know a traditional four three three or whatever shape it might it might end up being a four four two or a four three one. Um, I, I do think he has to be in. He is. He is worth a watch by himself, which is unusual for a right back. There's not many that have been over the years, and he is absolutely one. Now, there's a few others on this list, Trent, Hakimi, and Reese that are. I think Canseo at times at City was, but right now, Frimpong for certain. And then number 10, I've gone Pedro Poro. I don't think I've missed anyone out. That's a drastic exclusion. I could see... I mean... I feel like the one that, if he heard the list, would be most aggrieved by the list is probably Nahuel Molina of Argentina. And I'm more than happy to swap him in for Poro. And maybe bump him a bit higher than that. He is a very good all-round fullback. I just... He, he might be a... Is he better than Di Lorenzo? Di Lorenzo's form earns him the nod over him. Molina is a smaller version of Di Lorenzo in that he's got that versatility. He's kind of decent to good everywhere without being standout in any one specific action. But Di Lorenzo's form over the last 14 months, even this season when the team have been dreadful, I think he's been good. Uh, Gonzalo Montiel, Montiel is another one who's who I like, but I just couldn't get him in the list. <clears throat> right. <clears throat> Old-timers. So we're going to start with my, in my view, the best right-back of all time. I've got Javier Zanetti. Great at everything. When he first came across to Inter from Argentina, he wasn't very good defensively, to, to be polite. He wasn't very good defensively. But he put in so much work to develop that side of his game. He was already great on the ball, but he developed that side of his game off the ball incredibly well. He was a phenomenal leader. You look at what he won with Inter as captain. Just... Just great everywhere. And he's the first right back I ever saw that teams started to counter plan for. He was the first playmaking right back, like proper playmaking. I'm not talking about your Cafus or your Carlos Albertos, who were those overlapping fullbacks who were very exciting. He was a Trent-esque playmaker. He had that level of passing ability. Inter used to run much of their stuff through him. And teams used to have to play two left-backs rather than a left-back and left-winger to stop him. And until Trent, I've never seen anybody else put so much of the playmaking responsibility. Actually, no, that's not true. Dario Serna would be the bridge in between. But outside of those three, and you can make an argument now for Reese James in the last couple of years, like Zanetti was so far ahead of his time. Now, 
people will say, oh, well, he doesn't have great assist numbers. The value that's put on assists is ridiculous. Because if I play a 60-yard ball to somebody that splits the defense open from right to left, say Beckham to Giggs, because it always annoys me when people talk about Beckham's assist numbers. When Beckham would play that ball from right to left to Giggs over the top of the right back shoulder, and Giggs would run on to it, take one touch to play it into the space, and then whip that ball low across the area, and Andy Cole or Dwight York or Ollie Gunnar Solskjaer or he'd cut it back to Paul Scholes, and they'd come on to it and hit it and score that goal. Giggs gets the assist, but it's the Beckham pass that's made the goal. Zanetti was... Zanetti did that eight, nine times a season. There were goals that came from his pass that he didn't get the assist for. So if you look at hockey assists, to give it a a different name, uh, the pre-assist, I think Zanetti would rank very, very high all time. He's number one. Number two, Lillian Turam. I spoke about him on Friday in the World Cup 98 ramble. Uh, Lillian Turam defensively was flawless. Absolutely flawless. Uber intelligent, technically brilliant, fundamentally perfect. Good on the ball. Strong, quick, good in the air. Obviously played in a back three for Parma. Played centre-back later for Juve and for Barcelona and later for France as well. But at Monaco, at times for both Parma and Juve and for a good portion of his career with France, he played right back. And he was, from a defensive point of view, he's the best defensive right back of all time. So he's num- number two. Number three is the guy who Zanetti replaced as the starting right back for Inter Milan, who moved central, where he played on and off through his career. Giuseppe Bergami. Again, just that pure Italian defensive ability. 1v1 would just lock down a winger. Read the game brilliantly, had the awareness, the timing, the anticipation, the size and strength to deal with centre-back or winger. Decent pace. Long-time captain for, for Inter as well. He's Zanetti was his successor in, in that regard as well. Just a genuinely great, great player. And I think of everybody on this list, he is probably the most underrated of the lot. I think he is genuinely a special, special all-time defender. And he doesn't get talked about nearly enough outside of Inter Milan channels. The only... The only thing about him was he loved to boot a player up in the air. Like, he was the type where if a winger got the best of him, he would nobble them. He'd leave them limping on a heavy leg. He'd get away with it most times. Sometimes he wouldn't. But in the modern game, that's the one thing he'd have to cut out. Everything else about him, perfect. Uh, Number four... 
I've gone Philippe Lam, or Philip Lam, I should say. He's not. He's German, not Italian. Uh, Philip Lam, or French. Uh, he is German. Philip Lam, uh, just world class for 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 a long, long time. Either side became known to everybody during a loan at Stuttgart when he played left back. He was signed to be a backup right back, signed on loan from Bayern having come through their academy with the plan of he'll be our backup right back, got moved to left back and was outstanding. Like genuinely outstanding. Forced his way into the German team, went back to Bayern and the rest is history. Like he is a historically great Bayern Munich player, a historically, a historically great German player. The success speaks for itself. World Cup winner, Champions League winner, tons of Bundesliga and German Cup medals. The consistency was what always stood out for me. You rarely watched him play and have a bad game. He wasn't the biggest, but he found ways to deal with taller wingers so that he wasn't targeted at the back post. Very, very calm, great mentality. Super intelligent. And obviously when Guardiola went there, he started being that fullback who stepped into midfield. And then he just started playing in midfield. Um, Yeah. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. So he comes in at number four. Number five. I've gone for Bertie Vokes. You look at the career he had. He's one of my favorite managers of all time because of what he did with the German national team. But you look at his career as a player, and he's part of that incredible Bayern, uh, Borussia Mönchengladbach team in the 70s, where they win the title in 70, 71, 75, 76, 77. He won the UEFA Cup twice in the 70s with um, Gladbach as well. He started for Germany in the 74 World Cup. He was so consistently good, defensively tremendous, but really good on the ball, really good on the ball. I would compare him to like a Mascherano at right back, like small, but uber competitive, no notion of I've been beaten here. He just didn't allow it. And he was so consistent. Again, if you missed last Tuesday, the rules that I have put in place on this is it's from 1970 on and I have to have seen at least 25 games. And fortunately, Borussia Mönchengladbach games from that era were easy enough to source many years ago. And the the German games were were always easy to source from World Cups and, and European, well, yeah, World Cups and European Championships. Um, so he gets in. He gets in number five for me. And I do think it's important to point out that Jalma Santos, by most accounts, would be on this list, except he retired in 1970, retired from Brazil in 68, and I think maybe I've seen him play six or seven times, finding, you know, old World Cup games, two-time World Cup winner, of course. 
Uh, but those, you just, it's just, it's near impossible. You can't find footage from Brazil from when he was at Palmeiras and that. You just can't. So you're looking for World Cup games from 58, um, 62, and he was at 66, but he only played in two games. Um, it's just so hard to find that footage. But that's why I can't, he, he doesn't, he doesn't fit either the rule, but yeah, not of the cap to him. Anyway, onwards. Number six, I've gone Danny Alves. Now, his current legal status uh, made me very strongly consider leaving him out altogether. But look, I'm basing this just on football, so it is what it is. Um, I've got a number six. Incredible going forward. Now, aided and abetted by the fact that the two lads in front of him were Xavi and then Messi. So he couldn't have had it a whole lot easier playing triangles with with those two. Um, his assist numbers are a nonsense. I, I just ignore them because so many of them are, he would pass the ball to Messi, who then beat three players and score, that I don't even want to count them. But there's no denying what an outstanding player he was through his career. From Sevilla, because I never saw him play pre-Sevilla. So for Sevilla, Barca, the season he had at Juve was decent, but he was injured. Uh, He was pretty good for Paris Saint-Germain, and he went to Sao Paulo. And again, he was pretty good there. Um, He he was way past his best when he came back to Barca. That was foolish. And then he went to play in Mexico, and then his career got halted because of of what's going on. Um, The success is incredible. Copa del Rey and two UEFA Cups with Sevilla. Six league titles, three Champions Leagues, four Copa del Reyes with with Barca. That's not counting the four UEFA Super Cups he's now won between the two clubs and the three Club World Cups. He won the double with Juve. He won the treble with PSG and then won the league again the following year. He won the Sao Paulo title, league title, not the national league title in Brazil, the Sao Paulo league title with Sao Paulo and then with Brazil he won two Copa Americas two Confederations Cup Cups and the Olympics, I mean he is one of the most decorated, if not the most decorated players of all time um, so yeah I mean look, the, the career is the career the player was the player flawed defensively, without question he was a, a winger or attacking midfielder early in his career and then moved back to right back at Sevilla. He was tremendous and a very important part of that great Barcelona team. But he was a flawed defender. Like, there's no point in pretending he was a good defender. He was he was below average defensively. Um, I've got him six. So number seven, then, I've got Tassotti. Mauro Tassotti, the right back in the best back four of all time at AC Milan. Tassotti, Costa Corta, Baresi, Maldini. For me, the best 1v1 defender I've ever seen. It didn't matter what type of winger he was up against, whether they were lightning quick, whether they were super skillful, whether they were a big lump that teams would just launch cross field balls to and hope for the second ball. He just took them completely out of the game. 
And the issue with playing against that realm, uh, that AC Milan team is you couldn't build down his side because he was just all-encompassing defensively. You couldn't get on the other side because they had Maldini, who's the greatest defender of all time. So you might try and go through the centre, except you've got Billy Costa-Curta, who's the best man-marking centre-back I've ever seen. And you've got Franco Brazi, who might be the best centre-back of all time. So your best bet was to shoot from range and hope for the best. And that's really the truth of it. Like, that was your best bet, to shoot from range and hope for the best. Because the defence was always incredible. The goalkeepers were good but not great. If you look at those uh, Real Madrid teams from 88 to, like, 94 that won three European Cups, unbelievable back four. The goalkeepers, Galli and Rossi, I'm going to say, no, Galli, not Galli. Let me just... I do hate when I forget simple things. It does bother me. Yeah, Galli, it was Galli. Galli and then Rossi. Um, oh, there's, there's the two Gallies. There's Filippo Galli, who's the centre-back. He was very good. He could have started for any other club. And then Giovanni Galli was the goalkeeper. Um who's now a politician, which I was not aware of. What type of politician is he? Um, he is part of the people of freedom. Centre-right. He has not been a successful politician, it should be pointed out. Um... His son was a promising footballer and died in a road accident in 2001. Again, I, I didn't know that. They do. He does have two uh, two daughters. Um, he was good, not great. Rossi was good, not great. So your best bet was to shoot from distance because you, you just couldn't break down that back four. And like in front of them, they had Rijkaard and Albertini or Rijkaard and Ancelotti or Desai and Albertini. Like, it was just stupid. Stupid how good they were defensively. Um, and Tassotti was vital to that. Like, when you hear the names Maldini, Costa, Curta, Baresi, Tassotti, you immediately think Tassotti's the fourth guy. But he wasn't. Like, he, he more than held his own. More than held his own. Think Aspilicueta, but better. Bigger. Stronger. Quicker. That good. Um, number eight, I've got Cafu. Great going forward. Later in his career, improved greatly defensively. Early in his career, a defensive liability. When he first joined Roma, he couldn't defend to save his life. And he was, at that point, he was like 26, 27. But as he aged, he became less dynamic and he spent less of his time bombing forward. He did improve defensively. So it was more down to him just not being arsed defensively early in his career because he had everything you'd want. Great athlete, good speed, decent size, very clever. He is historically overrated. 
He is for me. He's historically overrated. Jalma Santos would be over him. I think. Mo, I think most Brazilian histo- football historians would have Jalma Santos as the number one Brazilian right back. I think Dani Alves would be three. Cafu would be four. The guy who I think is number two, I have actually below Cafu because I saw much less of him and I've seen much less of him. And that's Carlos Alberto, scorer of that very famous goal uh, for Brazil. I, I think historically he's he's adored. Absolutely tremendous player. Uh, won the World Cup with Brazil in, in 1970. Could do everything at right back. A better version of from from my watching, and I get I've I've barely hit, like barely hit, the threshold I set for watching him. But for my money, he was a better version of Cafu. So for me, I I would historically say he's the second best Brazilian right back. But from the purpose of this, based on how much I've seen and the level I've seen, because again, like I'm watching old, old World Cup games. I'm watching kind of late 70s Flamengo when he's in his 30s at that point. Like I can't find a whole lot of footage of him for Santos. Like so much of that footage that's out there is just highlights of Pele. Um, so it's tough for me to put a real real rating on him. And in truth, I was going to leave him off. And I was actually going to put Aspilicueta on because I just think he was so good defensively for Chelsea. But the historical aspect does have to come into this. And I think he deserves his flowers. Um, Yeah, just just a, a, a an all he's an all timer. Like he is an all timer. So uh then my five favorites. I've got sorry, I should have said I've got Cafu eight. I've got Trent nine. Recency bias without question. But I do think Trent if he was to stay at right back. And if he was to commit himself to being a right back for the remainder of his career, I do think he'd be number one in six, seven, eight years. Not now. I do think he could be number one. But I don't think he wants to. Uh, So I've got Trent nine. I've got Carlos Alberto ten. Sorry. So Zanetti, Turam, Bergami, Lamb, Vokes. Danny Alves, Tassati, Cafu, Trent, and Carlos Alberto. Uh, my five favorites. Zanetti is one. I I love him. I, I just I loved watching him play. If I was picking a dream defense, he would be in it. Uh, number two, Turam. And again, he, he's probably in my dream defense because I'd probably play a back three. I probably would play a back three. Uh, because I I I love a back three. I, I always have. Um I've been through why why I think they're so great and 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 all that. The same with Tassotti, uh number three. From a defensive point of view, he's just the best it's been. Now, Turam was close, 
Turam's a better all-round player because he was better on the ball and could offer you more going forward. But it was just that one-to-one, that one-on-one aspect of, of the Sati was just disgusting, how, how easy he made it look. It just engulfing wingers and taking them out of the game. Oh, you're, you're the best winger in the world, are you? Right, come here. You're not seeing the ball for the next 90 minutes. And it was just easy for him. He just Well, it wasn't easy for, easy for him, but he made it look easy. Uh, I've got Trent four, and again, that's does bias there, and I'm fine with that. Um, number five, I've gone Dario Serna, who I loved. It's a shame in many ways that he spent his entire career with Shakhtar. Well, not his entire career, but the, the, obviously the the vast bulk of his career with Shakhtar. He came through at Hadjik Split, spent 15 years with Shakhtar, and then went to Calgary and had that one year there. Um, it's a shame because I, I think he could have... I think historically he would be viewed far more favorably if he'd come and played in, in Western Europe. Um, he was such a great player for, for club and country. 14 years with the Croatian national team. He won 134 caps. He was captain of the national team. He's noted for his leadership. He's noted for his consistency. Good defensively. And in that Zanetti, Trent, mold at right back, just a great, great player. Won, won everything he could possibly win with uh, Shakhtar, barred the Champions League, but they were never likely to win that. But he did win the UEFA Cup uh, on top of a bunch of leagues, a bunch of Cups and a bunch of Super Cups. Um, yeah, and then my honorary mention on favourite right-backs is Rob Jones. Rob Jones was Liverpool's right-back in the 90s, having joined from Crew Alexandra. In 1991, they were in Division 4. Um, Graham Souness brought him to Liverpool and threw him into a game a couple of days later at Manchester United. Now, imagine, if you will, a player being signed out of League League 2. I almost said League 3. League 2 on a Thursday or when, Wednesday, Thursday. And on the Saturday or Sunday, they're making their debut away to Manchester United, up against the most highly regarded young player in Europe, who at the time was Ryan Giggs. Ryan Giggs was flying at the time. And uh, Rob Jones put him in his pocket, like completely marked him out of the game. I watched that game back about two years ago and Giggs barely had a kick at the ball. And Rob Jones, Rob Jones was Tassotti-esque defensively. He was actually quite good going forward as well. He never scored for Liverpool. He got into a bunch of good positions, but he could never get a goal. But he made a number of goals. Such an unfortunate player. I, I never understood why Roy Evans bought Jason McAteer and played him as a right wing back and shifted Jones to the left. I didn't like that at all. For me, McAteer and Redknapp as a double pivot, with Redknapp sitting and McAteer going box to box, made a lot more sense. I know he was trying to appease John Barnes, but that made more sense, keeping Jones at right wing back and then buying an actual left wing back, which I think he tried to do when he got Berger. I think he was planning to convert Patrick Berger to a left wing back, but then it obviously just didn't work and Roy Evans found his way out out of the job, but with with Rob Jones, I mean, the injuries were just, 
It was heartbreaking. Like it was genuinely heartbreaking. He was, he was England's best right back by a country mile in the early to mid nineties. He couldn't stay fit. He had a major back issue. And then he had shin splints and stress fractures and all manner. Then he had a knee issue. And it was just, it was really, really hard to watch. He left Liverpool at the age of 28. And he should have been in his peak. He barely kicked a ball for two and a half years or so. Uh, just, it was so, so tough. He had three knee issues, three knee operations at Liverpool. Then they, they released him. It's so it's such a shame. And he went to West Ham and he just couldn't get himself fit. Such a shame. Retired at 28. If he hadn't gotten hurt, Gary Neville has about six England caps. That's a simple fact of it. He was significantly better than Gary Neville. Defensively and in attack. Such a shame. Like, he joins Liverpool in October 91. By the following summer, he's first choice for England already. He missed that Euros through injury, and then it was just... He only won eight caps in the end. I read his book... It's good, it's tough, because he knows that he was robbed of, of, of so much because of the injuries. Um, he's, He was such a good player. Yes, he's one of my, my favourites as well. Right, on to the gossip before I start reminiscing too much. Uh, West Ham are considering a fresh approach for Harry Maguire in January. They signed Mavroponos instead of him, though. So what would be the point in that? Manchester United are keeping tabs on Mark Wehi ahead of a potential move next summer. If Mark Wehi has any sense, he will run a mile. Uh, Mark Wehi and the midget would be too small as a centre-back pairing. Uh, Barcelona are interested in Caro Matoma. I'm sure they are. They don't have any money, though. Manchester United are ready to let Anthony Martial leave the club in January. It's either that or they're ready to give him a new contract, but either way, uh, he should have been let go years ago. He, what an unmitigated disaster he's been. Jesse Lingard is edging closer to signing Al Etifak, but is unable to make his January his debut until January due to the foreign player rules in Saudi Arabia. Uh, Juventus are expected expecting competition from Arsenal, Man City and Brighton for Shakhtar Donetsk midfielder Georgie Sudikov. He's very good. Uh, Juventus are considering a move for Jaden Sancho. Okay. Wales are considering. This can't be real. Considering sacking manager Rob Page. Wales are like second in their group and appointing Roy Keane. Oh, sorry. They considered it, not they are considering it. They considered it. I don't believe that, to be honest. Manchester United have launched an investigation to try and establish why the squad has suffered so many injuries because the training methods are a mess. AC Milan want to bring in Real Betis in Spain right back Juan Miranda as an understudy to Teo Hernandez. That would make sense. Jack Wilshere is in the running to become the Colorado Rapids manager. I think I saw that on Friday. I think I commented on that on Friday. I think it would be a bit strange. Um, 
but maybe. Uh, Liverpool are interested in making Max Eberl their sporting director. No, they're not. They're interested in making him their sporting CEO, which is a different role altogether. Manchester City, Arsenal, uh, Chelsea and Manchester United all want Palmeiras duo, Estavo and Luis Guilherme. Um, Estavo's only 16, Guilherme is 17 and Palmeiras will absolutely rinse whichever club buys either of them. Philippe Clement wants a four-year contract and he has become uh, he has become Rangers manager, so I'm assuming he got a three- or four-year contract. Real Madrid and England midfielder Jude Bellingham is the joint most valuable player in La Liga now, according to new data. I mean, I assume that's transfer markets valuation because this is from transfer market. Ajax are interested in making Manchester United assistant manager Mitchell van der Gag their manager, if they sack Maurice Stein. I think it's fairly certain they're going to sack Maurice Stein. To sack Maurice Stein. Um, I don't know if Mitchell van der Gag is the guy to go to, though. Sources close to Sheikh Jassim's camp insist nothing has changed. Yada, yada, yada. Who cares? You have no sources. You're just spoofers. Barcelona are interested in signing Jaden Sancho in June, if they can agree a cut price deal. Sancho make any sense there? Don't really think he would. I mean, maybe. Him and Balde down the left would be fun. Maybe, yeah. Uh, Inter Milan chief executive Giuseppe Morata has has refused to rule out the possibility of Andre Onana returning to the club after his terrible start to time. They haven't said terrible. I've said terrible. Start to his time at Manchester United. Bruno Gomerich has a clause in his contract that will allow him to join Barcelona for 70 million euro. No, he doesn't. That's, that is bullshit. Liverpool have made Leroy Sané their number one target to replace Mo Salah. No, they haven't. Vinicius Jr. says he texted Jude Bellingham to convince him to join Borussia, to join Real Madrid from Borussia Dortmund. I, I think he's been convinced about that for a long time, but you know, fair play. Uh, Pep Guardiola made a three-hour phone call to Bellingham before his move to Real in a bid to persuade him to join his travel winners. Uh, City were never, never, ever in the race. Jude didn't want to go to what he termed a plastic club, so he was never going to Man City. So uh, I don't actually believe that that story is true. Calvin Phillips is weighing up a move away from Manchester United in January over concerns his lack of playing time may hinder his chances of making Gareth Southgate's Euro 2024 squad. Well, you didn't play much at all last season and had a dislocated shoulder and he still brought you to the World Cup. Um, You've barely played this season and you're still in the squad. So I don't think you need to worry. You're one of the bulletproof ones for some reason. Crystal Palace and Aston Villa are among Premier League sides monitoring Norwich's John Rowe. Charlie Patino wants a long-term future at Arsenal when his loan spell at Swansea ends. He wants to leave last year, so I'm not sure how true that is. Barcelona are lining up a summer move for Ian Matson. Now, this wouldn't make any sense because they've got no money, but he's free in the summer. So, yeah, it might make sense then. Uh, now, he's really good. Don't get me wrong. They they would be signing because he's free. Other clubs would happily pay money for him. Uh, Manchester United midfielder Scott McTominay is set to stay at the club for the rest of the season with Eric Ten Hag ruling out a move for the Scottish international. But he is their their biggest goal threat, so it makes sense to keep him. Um, 
Prospective Everton owners 777 partners hope to agree a deal with businessman and Toffees fans Andy Bell and George Downing, who have already invested 80 million in the club as part of a previous bid by MSP Capital. It's a very messy situation at Barcelona. Or at Barcelona, at Everton. It's a messy situation at Barcelona. It's a very messy situation at Everton. Atletico Madrid, West Brom, and Sunderland are interested in signing Jan and Via. They all should sign him. He's great. Uh, Man City are ready to make a move for Dan- Danny Olmo next summer. It would make some sense. West Ham, Brentford, and Wolves watched Atletico Monero left back Guilherme Marana play for Brazil against Venezuela with the Hammers ready to make a January bid for the 24-year-old. Wolves don't need him. Wolves have a really good left back. Brentford have a really good left back, though he is injured. Uh, but they've got another good, really good left back as well. West Ham might make sense there. Uh, and then yada yada Jesse Lingard. Uh, on to the last group of it. So then Arsenal and England midfielder. Not England midfielder. He's an under-21 international. Uh, Emile Smith-Rowe is a subject of interest from Newcastle United. I really like Emile Smith-Rowe. I really, really... He does have three England caps. See? I didn't know that. I didn't know he had three England I Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, fair. Um, Emile Smith-Rowe was outstanding. I'm a big, big fan. Arsenal are interested in Aston Villa's 27-year-old English striker, Ollie Watkins. Okay. Inter Milan are being linked with Thomas Suchek and Kelechi Iheanacho. Iheanacho as a depth option would make some sense. Could see that. I could see that. Uh, Suchek, though? I mean, yeah, maybe. West Ham want to sign him to a new contract, though. Uh, Chelsea are ready to sell Trevor Chaloba. I, I don't understand what they're doing. Paris Saint-Germain will make a final contract renewal offer to Kylian Mbappe, possibly with a low release clause. I don't understand what the point of that would be. Uh, Greece boss Gus Poyet says he would like to manage the Republic of Ireland at some point, uh, having led his side to two wins over the Irish in Euro 2024 qualifying. Um, I don't mind Gus Poyet as a manager, to be fair. He did pretty well at, at Brighton before it, it all fell apart. Um, he didn't do great at Sunderland. He did really well with AK Athens. Um, and never quite understood what the falling out there was. Did he leave that job to take the Betis job? Was that what it was? He didn't do well at Betis. He didn't do well in China. He did very well with Bordeaux. And then he left that job strangely as well. And then he went to manage in Chile, uh, which is fair enough. Uh, and he didn't do great there. He's done pretty well with Greece though. Like he has done well with Greece. Um, would I want him? As Ireland manager, I don't really know. I don't really know. No, he was not. He did not leave A. Athens to take the Betis job. He was sacked because he told the media he was going to leave at the end of the season. So they sacked him in the April. Uh, so that's good. Um, and he was he, he left Bordeaux having criticised them selling one of their best players. Which I think is is absolutely you know fair that he criticised him. I, I I don't know. I don't know if I'd want him. 
Uh, Man City stand to earn more than 8 million through a sell-on clause if Liverpool sign Leroy Sané. Well, you can't say that because you don't know how much they'd sign him for, so that's nonsense. Uh, Jim Radcliffe's 25% investment in United is far from complete with the British billionaire and club owner set for long negotiations. I mean, it's Delaney, so I mean, he's well he's well hooked in at United. You know, you can criticise Miguel if you want for being a little bit pompous, but he's well hooked in at United. Um, if the investment is successful, the Ineos Group want to expand the capacity of Old Trafford to 90,000. You might want to sort out the seats that are there already and, and make it, you know, not a tumbling wreck. Uh, Bayern Munich and Barcelona both want to sign Florian Wirtz. Makes sense. He is he is incredibly gifted. Um, Manchester United in no rush to sell Scott McTominay. Former Manchester United boss Oli Gunnar Solskjaer will not be Charlotte FC's new manager after team president Joe LeBeau, Joe LeBeau, uh wrote on social media that he was only visiting their club facility. Uh, that's that's good news for Charlotte because uh, Oli Gunnar Solskjaer is shit as a manager. So, you know, there's that. Uh, that'll do, folks. I will see you all on Wednesday. No podcast tomorrow. I will see you all on Wednesday. Take care. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.